Hello and welcome to The Warpod by the Oxford Research Group. My name is Liam Warpole. In this episode, my colleague Megan and I interview David Greeley. David is a third-year PhD candidate at the University of Liverpool. His research project explores the evolution of human rights considerations within the context of British foreign policy from 1977 to 1997. The title of his PhD is Human Rights and British Foreign Policy, 1977 to 1997, an intellectual biography of David Owen. In 2017, David participated in the Global Humanitarianism Research Academy in Mines and Geneva, and in 2018, he studied at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. as a fellow at the John W. Kluge Center. Now, in recent years, the concept of an ethical foreign policy has been repopularized and adopted by political parties like the UK Labour Party. But who is David Owen and what role did he have as an innovator of a human rights-based foreign policy? Well, here's our interview with David Greeley. Well, hello, David. Thanks so much for coming in. You've made a trek from the north down to the south uh, now, you're currently studying a PhD, as we are saying in our intro, at Liverpool University, mm-hmm. uh, and you've decided to focus your research on the origins of the ethical consideration in the UK's foreign policy approach. And I think, you know, Megan, you'll probably agree, this is quite a relevant area that, that we've sort of been focusing on, not only because of increased debates within parties, political parties here in the UK, if you look at the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn, they're very much supporting a ethical foreign policy. Um, and of course, the issues, I suppose, is where the, the spotlight has been over the last couple of years around the relationship that the UK has with Saudi Arabia. Now, this is not a new relationship. It's not a new issue, uh, but it's definitely come to the forefront of people's minds in Parliament, among the public, among the media, um, given the, the, the impact in the, com- or the conflict in, in Yemen and, and Britain's role in supporting Saudi Arabia. But what does an ethical foreign policy actually mean? Mm-hmm. And what, is it, what does it actually aim to do differently? So yeah. standing after the big questions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, still, it's very much a contested um, term. I think it'd be accurate to say that all attempts to construct um, a quote-unquote ethical foreign policy um, are united in their attempts to um, arrive at a broader definition of self-interest um, than a sort of traditionalist or or realist conception of foreign policy that only looks at sort of um, securing the you know financial and financial well-being and, mm-hmm. and the security of its citizens. Um, so this kind of broadening of national um, self-interest um, in many cases necessitates an engagement with human rights promotion, um, humanitarian intervention, um, and sort of global health initiatives, um, that sort of thing. And it's also, it seems, a kind of at once an inward-looking and outward-looking process, this construction of ethical foreign policy, um, wherein policymakers seek to identify um, the sort of values of mm-hmm. uh, their respective nations and then project um, that sort of value system um, onto the global stage. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you kind of clearly see with um, Robin Cook's attempts to um, outline an ethical dimension to uh, New Labour's foreign policy um, in 1997. I think he famously said um, that the Labour government refuses to accept that we have to check in or leave behind our political values when we check in our passports to travel mm-hmm. on diplomatic duty. Um, and then he went on to sort of try and um, place human rights concerns at the heart of, of New Labour's foreign policy, at least rhetorically anyway. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so that's that. I think that's kind of whistle stop tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, you that's say really it's, uh, it's a very um, now, contested. Now, you, you mentioned Robin Cook. He he is always the individual that people seem to talk about when they reference uh, an ethical foreign policy. Uh, and it's definitely been the case in the last couple of years with the Labour Party. They always talk about Robin Cook, but he wasn't actually the innovator of this this approach, was he? No, no, not exactly. Um, so when I was conducting like, preliminary research for my um, PhD project. Uh, that you mentioned, I was struck by um, well, the really striking similarities um, between the rhetoric used by Robin Cook um, during his mission statement in 1997 um, and, the and the rhetoric used by David Owen, who was um, Foreign Secretary during the Callaghan Labour government um, from 1977 to 79. Um, you know, Owen also tried to at least rhetorically place human rights at the heart of British foreign policy, argued that policymakers needed to reflect, um, you know, the general populace in its kind of human rights considerations. Um, yeah, and so when I sort of delved a bit deeper into this kind of rhetorical similarity, um, I found that this wasn't, you know, sort of fleeting or, or solitary reference. Um, rather, human rights at this stage, um, during the late 1970s, does become quite a sort of key issue um, in the foreign policy of the Labour government. Um, so my PhD essentially tries to kind of um, tie the threads together in a way by sort of exploring this evolution of um, the relationship between human rights and British foreign policy from the late 1970s um, through to the kind of, um, yeah, late 90s. Right. That sounds really fascinating. Can you perhaps tell us more about who David Owen is and maybe more about his background as well, where he came from and why he was interested in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, uh, David Owen is probably most widely known um, in the UK for his attempts to reshape like domestic social democratic politics during the 1980s. Mm. Um, he was one of the gang of four Labour politicians to split um, from the party and form the SDP um, in 1981. Um, but yeah, as I said, he was appointed... He's a deputy leader, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, um, SDP. Yeah. So he was... Um, but he's actually uh, appointed as um, Labour Foreign Secretary in February 1977, uh, following the um, untimely death of um, Anthony Crossland. Um, but at this stage, he was quite a sort of unknown quantity. Um, he was the youngest Foreign Secretary since Anthony Eden, only 38 mm. years old. Um, and no one really expected this sort of um, elevation of human mm -hmm. rights uh, concerns. And as I say, it was in his first major speech as Foreign Secretary that he tries to sort of um, or he says that Britain's going to take a stand on human rights issues in every corner of the globe. Um, why did he sort of, um, yeah, why did he sort of focus on human rights? Well, I think there's kind of, uh, yeah, a confluence of domestic and international issues going on here. So um, I think in part he saw human rights promotion as a way of kind of reattaching or reconnecting the Labour Party mm -hmm. to its the sort of radical spirit on, in which it was founded. Mm -hmm. Um he talked a lot about how, you know, the Labour Party was nothing if not a moral crusade, sort of echoing Harold Wilson. Um, but he also felt that under Wilson, the Labour Party had become increasingly kind of managerial and had ceased to sort of inspire uh, and was, you know, failing to inspire a new generation of voters. Um, so I think in that sense, human rights, um, yeah, was a way of um, kind of giving the Labour Party a bit of a shot in the arm, um, a bit of sort of uh, moral conviction. Um, and in fact, he, he publishes a book on human rights when he's in office mm. um, in 1978. And in the first chapter, he very much tries to frame human rights as a natural policy for socialists to champion. 
I had enough time to write a book while he was Yeah, I know, office. yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's I'm not sure Dominic Rahm's no. got enough time to do that today, is he? Um, I don't know. <laughs> but alongside those kind of domestic um, considerations, um, there's a lot going on in the 1970s into, that served to elevate human rights as a, as a legitimate focus for international relations. Um, there's been a huge amount written about how the 1970s was the breakthrough decade for human rights and international relations. Um, so you had, at the same time, Jimmy Carter in the US. Mm. He's made mm-hmm. US foreign policy um, you know, more focused on human rights promotion. Um, you also have a growing grassroots sort of civil society engagement um, Amnesty International is, is, you know, it receives the Nobel Peace Prize in 1977. Um, the Helsinki process has codified human rights concerns in the context of the East-West dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of these things have um, bumped up human rights to a kind of hitherto uh, unseen level mm-hmm. of, of prominence. Um, it's very much kind of course celebrity at the, at the time. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, the, the confluence of these sort of domestic and international concerns um means that human rights is very much there to, to be grasped at by the time that yeah. Owen becomes foreign secretary. It's really interesting because it sounds like he was a very interesting character and had quite a lot mm. to say on this topic. And But it seems at the same time that he's kind of fallen into the background when we talk about um, the history of the ethical foreign policy mm. concept, whereas Robin Cook is often the person who is pointed to. So why do you think that is? Why is there that um, focus on Uncook as opposed to Owen? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the existing academic literature on um, the sort of... Uh, infusion of ethical concerns in British foreign policy does tend to see Robin Cook's uh, mission statement as a, as a kind of radical departure from, I guess, the sort of deeply entrenched realism that predominated hitherto. Um, I think maybe a reason for this contemporary focus is that a lot of this literature has been um, produced by international relations scholars who have a more contemporary like, policy-oriented okay. focus. Right. Um, but that, I suppose, also begs the question as to why historians haven't engaged mm. um with sort of previous iterations of a, you know, quote unquote ethical foreign policy. Um, yeah, I could only really uh, speculate, but I think maybe, you know, lingering assumptions that British foreign policy has always kind of been um, guided predominantly by realpolitik mm-hmm. and, you know, ideas like perfidious Albion. And uh, it's um, <laughs> the idea of that human rights champions existed sort of, um, yeah, within the British foreign policy kind of machinery um, probably doesn't sit comfortably alongside mm. those sort of assumptions. So maybe that sort of militated against a substantive engagement um, prior to, to Robin Cook. But um, I think you also maybe have to look at the failure to appropriately institutionalize human rights concerns um, during the time that I'm uh, looking at. So uh, if we look across uh, to what was going on in the US during the Carter administration, you have um, the establishment of a separate Bureau of Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs at the State Department, headed by a new Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights and Humanitarian Issues. Um, so you have the establishment of a kind of, not independent, but at least a recognisable human rights bureaucracy that would maybe stand the test of time and the comings and goings of administrations whose leaders may or may not mm-hmm. be you know, as interested in human rights as Carter was. Um, in the UK, by contrast... Uh, even though you get an elevation of human rights concerns uh, within the context of British foreign policy uh, under Owen, um, human rights responsibilities within the Foreign Office are kind of foisted upon pre-existing departments that have broader remits right. that aren't yeah. specifically or you know, distinctly concerned with human rights issues. So the UN Department, for instance. Um, and I think this kind of makes human rights a bit of a hostage to fortune. Um, if you remove the impetus from above... Um, and you have, you know, in the 
coming of a new government, ministers who aren't so much focused on human rights, um, that human rights focus in those departments is going to diminish. Mm. And I think that's something you can see um, when you get to the 1979 watershed and the coming of the, of the Thatcher government. Um, human rights concerns in the context of overseas aid, for example, um, mm. that relationship starts to be downgraded, I think, quite quickly. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd say, um, yeah, kind of two-pronged thing, yeah, the sort mm. of... Um, the scholarly sort of um, proclivities of, of <laughs> people, and also, yeah, these uh, the failure of the bureaucratization mm. of human rights. I think has maybe contributed to that myopic focus that we that we're so, so, yeah, struggling with. Because mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite interesting. Because I mean, David Owen is still alive, and he's in the, the House of Lords, isn't he? But but Robin Cook is obviously no longer alive. Mm. Um, and it seems, I mean, whether it's because there was quite a dramatic end to his role or time as foreign secretary that means that he was uh, seen as a man of principle mm. and and I think you're absolutely right with regards to sort of the the contemporary nature it still seems sort of quite recent history uh, within the Labour Party but also mm. among among the public in the media um, so maybe that also has uh, a bearing on it as well mm. um, so we've talked about David Owen we've talked about Robin Cook um, and they both seem to sort of appear to have been the lead personalities to have sort of driven this concept, mm. if I can put it that way, um, and sort of brought it to the fore of the political agenda over the last sort of 40, 50 years. Was there anyone else? Um, I, I always sort of understood that Claire Short, for example, who was another one of those characters mm. in, in the Blair government, um, was sort of aligned to sort of the, the Robin Cook sort of agenda mm. uh, whilst at Diffid. Um, was she quite influential in Sarah, do you know? Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes slightly beyond the, the sort of scope of, of my uh, research. But mm. yeah, it's speaking to um, members of human rights NGOs who were active during that period, certainly Claire Short's name gets thrown around as a, as a particularly influential figure. Um, but yeah, I certainly don't want to make it appear that, that David Owen was a kind of long, lone voice in, yeah, yeah. in promoting human rights. Even if you look back to the late 1970s, various members of the Callaghan um, government uh, were similarly um, interested and engaged with human rights. For instance, um, Minister, Minister for Overseas Development, Judith Hart, is very influential in elevating human rights within the context of overseas aid. Um, Owen's Minister of State, Frank Judd, likewise, mm. approaches She's human rights. also still in the yeah, House Yeah, and um, approached human rights as likewise from a, from a you know, distinctly socialist perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, his engagement with human rights has continued through his membership of various human rights committees and as his, uh, his role as director of Oxfam UK. Um, yeah, so, and also, I mean, Robin Cook as well, his engagement with human rights can be traced back to the 1970s when he um, sought to place a lot of pressure on uh, the Callaghan government in an attempt to reshape its mm-hmm. um, attitudes about selling arms to you know, human rights offenders. So yeah, there's certainly... Um, Yes, certainly not a lone voice, um, and perhaps even you know, not the most recognisable voice. But yeah. I think he, by following David Owen's story, you get yeah an interesting look at sort of the evolution of these debates and how they kind of intersected with related mm. ideas about sort of humanitarian intervention. Um, so yeah, I think um, yeah David Owen's an interesting lens through which to view these things. Mm-hmm. But I'm always constantly trying to yeah, yeah. contextualise. Um, well, I suppose the, the fact that he was foreign secretary as well yeah. has yes. some bearing on why he's this quite you know prominent yeah. character in looking at the historiography. And then maybe going from there, because I think it is really interesting to talk about these personalities who obviously had a very big impact um, on the way that this was thought. But I'm I'm curious to know more about the practical implications as well 
of embedding this human rights agenda at the heart of the UK's approach to foreign policy. Um, so what sort of measures do you think were put in place to ensure that human rights were incorporated into political decision-making? Mm. Yeah, so I mean, although I mentioned that David Owen kind of amplified or elevated human rights within the context of British foreign policy from 77 to 79, um, yeah, he certainly didn't introduce the concept. And actually, following the Pinochet coup in Chile in 1973, you start to see human rights begin to factor in more to the British um, foreign policy-making process. Um, so that connection's already kind of been established, but the decisions taken within the Foreign Office in late 1976 to try and um, implement or introduce uh, more objective and reliable criteria by which a sort of human rights-based foreign policy um, can be established. Uh, so this idea was, um, yeah, this idea to kind of create this human rights comparative assessment um, was happened upon. So posts overseas would grade their respective. Uh, when we're talking about nations. posts, we're talking about embassies. Yeah, embassies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. they would. Yeah, um, so they would. You know, they were instructed to grade their you know, mm-hmm. respective um, countries' human rights performance based on various criteria. Um, and once you know these results were collated, you'd essentially have a human rights league table um, where all these countries were ranked based on um, this sort of strange and quite arbitrary sort of number system. Um, but anyway, this was supposed to you know give ministers the the information they needed to mm. um, yeah construct a you know a more consistent, more objective um, human rights based foreign policy that would kind of um, inoculate them from you know, charges of hypocrisy and double standards and, um, yeah, subjectivity. Mm. Um, well, at least that was the, that was the idea. Was the anyway. idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think this is, it's quite interesting, uh, hearing about the, um, what what's the full title of the human rights? Well, yeah, it's good to you know, human rights comparative assessment. Human rights comparative assessment, because obviously there's a, a system in place now, the overseas security justice assistance assessment, or the OSGES, um, which basically are there to measure or calculate risk of the UK providing support uh, overseas, and it's been an area that we've been been looking at. Uh, with quite a lot of interest yeah. in terms of how the UK is making sure that when it is providing support to military partners, mm. for example, um, it's putting in place pretty stringent and rigorous uh, processes to make sure that they're not then encouraged, emboldened, these the, the states that the UK is sponsoring, to then go and target civilians, for example. Mm. Um, and also to, to make sure that the UK's approach isn't just tactical, um, because there are often many issues in terms of a corrupt security sector mm. well you can't just go and teach them IHL training mm. because yeah. if the whole thing is rotten then that's just going to be a plaster over really um, you know addressing the symptom rather than the cause of yeah. some of the problems um, so we definitely I think it's interesting that, that that and it goes back to everything you've been talking about with regards to well you had David Owen and others talking about ethical foreign policy and then sort of Robin Cook turns up and sort of makes it tries to make it original and, yeah. you know, nothing, nothing is ever as far as I understand it original yeah. in politics often <laughs> uh, at least they, they try and make it to, to sound like it's yeah. original but it's, it's not mm. um, but I think something that's really clear uh, in sort of today's context is that there's always a, a challenge and there are always inconsistencies <laughs> Uh, you, you were trying. You were talking there about trying to make sure that there was sort of a consistent yeah. approach through this comparative assessment. But you know, for example, the UK speaks you know often quite commendably about um, human rights issues in countries like Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, Nigeria. Um, 
but often continues to provide military assistance and support, I think in particular with regards to Saudi Arabia. I mean, mm. Dominic Raab was only there, I think, mm. last week speaking to, I think, the foreign minister, Saudi yes. foreign minister about human rights. But this isn't, as I said, it's not a new challenge. No. Um, and I, I think you've suggested that Owen, while foreign secretary, in some of the conversations we've had in the past as well, and uh, talks that I've seen you give, that also found himself sort of struggling to reconcile human rights concerns with the pursuit of Britain's sort of rightful share mm-hmm. of, for example, the global weapons industry. Um, but Owen was hardline on El Salvador, as far as I understand it. Um, and I think you can provide a bit of context to that. But then it was <laughs> less so when it came to, for example, the Shah of Iran, uh, when there was opportunities for trade and the weapons exchanges. So what do you, what do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so the two case studies um, you mentioned, um, El Salvador and Iran, featuring uh, my PhD research, because I think they clearly um, illuminate the narrow parameters within which human rights was actually able to influence the, the foreign policy um making process, particularly when economic interests mm. were at stake. Um, so yeah, in, in terms of El Salvador, um, Owen, um, in October 1977, um, finds out that El Salvador, you know, the kind of right-wing dictatorship there, is about to take delivery of around, I think, £850,000 worth of British armoured vehicles. Um, and Owen, having made several public statements about, you know, making human rights a central pillar of British foreign policy, um, is not best pleased. Um, and decides that he's kind of going to draw a line in the sand and these deals, these, these contracts have to be cancelled. And he, you know, encounters a lot of sort of official, um, mm-hmm. opposition. Um, and I won't sort of detail. And that's uh, within the Foreign Office. Yes, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and also, yeah, the other department, yeah, the Treasury and stuff, yeah. not best pleased. But, um, yeah, I won't sort of detail, um, forensically the kind of <laughs> comings and goings yeah, and the yeah. intrigue that led to the eventual cancellation of the deal, um, in early 1978. But it's a, a fascinating story that involves, um, a prolonged lo- uh, lobbying campaign by mm-hmm. the Catholic Institute of International Relations, which used, you know, um, government leaks and uh, journalist contacts and sympathetic parliamentarians mm-hmm. to you know put sufficient pressure on the Callaghan government to, to reverse course and, and cancel the contracts at one stage the um, the uh, Archbishop of Westminster um, Cardinal Basil Hume actually gets involved and wow. um, sends a sends what turned out to be a decisive letter to um, Jim Callaghan on the eve of um, a sort of cab- a, you know cabinet subcommittee mm-hmm. meeting. Um, where the decision was you know, eventually taken to, to cancel the contracts. Um, although it must be said that human rights concerns in and of themselves you know, didn't prove um, you know, sufficient justification to actually cancel the contracts, uh, even though a lot of people made that argument. Um, those who you know, argued in favour of cancellation uh, within the Foreign Office tended to focus more on strategic considerations regarding the possibility of these armoured vehicles being used against British troops stationed in Belize. Um, and the, the sort of ongoing conflict between sure. Guatemala and El Salvador over um, Belize. Um, and they did this because they didn't want a sort of dangerous precedent being set. Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned, that you had the human rights comparative assessment. What would happen if you, you know, you cancel the El Salvador contracts on human rights grounds? Um, and then you find that you have, you know, pre-existing contracts with FN, well, you know, hu- countries whose human rights record is even worse. Yeah. Right. And yeah. what if these contracts are far more lucrative than the, you know, measly eight hundred fifty thousand pounds? <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, because yeah. it is not a huge amount of money. But no. it's, yeah. Um, and so yeah, there's a kind. The comparative assessment essentially um, 
this was the kind of litmus test and it didn't really um, prove to be much use essentially it was um, foreign policy was still or the, the decision to kind of um, yeah lean on human rights concerns um, was still essentially up to the you know the subjectivity and the the on the spot decision making of you know key policymakers like Owen, mm. um, and this becomes even more apparent uh, with regard to Iran, as you mentioned. Mm. So, um, yeah, the, the decision is taken. Um, you know, as the kind of Iranian revolution is um, proceeding to support the Shah, warts and all, um, <laughs> even providing him, him with the, the crowd control equipment necessary to kind of quash, uh, quash the sort of internal uh, rebellions. Uh, resulting from decades of autocratic rule there, mm-hmm. um, so providing with like CS gas and you know police training and whatnot. Um, yeah, and this is, you know, the, the documents clearly show that this was you know based on an appreciation of economic considerations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Shah is one of the most loyal patrons of the British weapons industry. Um, yeah, and it simply wouldn't do to kind of chastise him too harshly on his on his human rights record, even though. I think in his first meeting with the Shah, Owen does bring up, you know, a tr- just trying to slightly nudge him in a more, mm. um, yeah, human rights uh, appreciative direction. Um, <laughs> although Anthony Parsons, who was the um, British ambassador in Tehran, um, recalls that this was done in a very low key. I think David Owen, you know, has one kind of carefully worded sentence on human yes. rights and then proceeds to shift the, the subject of the discussions I'm sure uh, it's to a less controversial kind of situation when <laughs> ministers go over to see the Saudis. And, yeah, I was uh, going to say, yeah. it sounds very familiar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think they can easily say that they've raised human rights concerns, yeah. but what does that mean? I mean, yeah. this is asking a question, well, how's it all going? Then? Oh, it's all fine. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Okay, fine. right, next yeah. step. Next step. When are we sending you arms? You know? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, case study. Um, to, to look at and I think it really compares quite well to the, the, the current context. I think that's definitely right and do you think it's also right to say that Robin Cook kind of faced um, similar challenges post-1997 mm. when he came under pressure to go against his own um, ethical approach? Yeah absolutely and um, I think in the case of Robin Cook those uh, that dilemma was highlighted even more strikingly and, and very early on so I think just 77 days after he um, outlines this ethical dimension um, he agrees to uh, the sale of yeah, Hawk aircraft and um, crowd control equipment to the repressive regime in Indonesia. Um, I think his biographer recalls that shortly after the news of this broke, you know, protesters started gathering um, you know, outside his office bearing the, the banner that had the slogan on it, Ethical Foreign Policy RIP. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, it was highlighted uh, very early on. Um, I, this didn't necessarily spell the end of his attempts to mm, reconcile yeah. strategic and uh, human rights imperatives in foreign policy. Mm-hmm. The ethical dimension kind of limps on for a, a few years, but Labour ministers soon start to realise that this had become a kind of albatross around the around the neck of the government. And right. leading up to the the uh, general election in two thousand and one, the ethical tag is sort of dropped altogether. Yeah. Mm. Um, so yeah, that was that was one of the things that I was I was struck by when uh, noticing the kind of striking similarities again between between the two, and uh, which again you know cast a spotlight on this surprising lack of scholarly coverage. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. These debates weren't new when they were happening in 1997. In fact, just almost exactly 20 years yeah. prior, mm-hmm. they'd played out. Um, yeah, with alarming sort of degrees of similarity. Yeah, yeah. And how much? Just quickly, I, we've got to got to press on, but. I just wanted to ask you how much, because you talked about David Owen uh, having to get signer from Jim Callaghan. It went to a subcommittee mm. when it came to the El Salvador case. Yeah. How much influence 
did the Foreign Secretary mm. have, when we talk about Robin Kirkall, yeah. I think you're probably more expertly um, can, can cover David Owen on this front, but how, how much sort of authority did they have to just sort of overrule mm. the Prime Minister would say, or was it very much their decision or was it the Prime Minister to make? Yeah, I think in terms of human rights issues, Callaghan, by and large, was happy to let Owen be slightly out in front of the government on, on lots of issues. Uh, but again, it comes back to that point of when you know, economic economic interests are, you know, great enough um, and the elevation of human rights may imperil those um, is very much the case that Owen was kind of reined in. I mean, I don't have the sort of necessary documentation to to bear that out in, in much detail, but certainly in the case of, of Iran, you know, the decision was taken at a kind of prime ministerial level and mm-hmm. um, that the Shah would be supported. And yeah, warts and all, there was a, there was a kind of forensic... Um, Report commissioned by the Foreign Office uh, shortly after the fall of the Shah, which kind of looked back at, at governmental policy uh, during during those years, and yeah, it was kind of decided that the um, that the route that you know was laid out for Owen was was kind of decided. There, were, there weren't really many alternatives um, beyond yeah British support, you know, kind of moderated by the odd hint in the direction of a you know human rights and uh, yeah, so you know, certainly it, it was. Um, it was the case that Owen was kind of only allowed to go so far mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. human rights promotion was concerned. It's very useful. Now, you've also talked in your research about what Owen has come to describe as the morality of compromise, mm-hmm. uh, which sort of speaks to some of the issues we've already been talking about. Can you explain what he meant by that? Yeah, so this is um, a term that crops up kind of in the context of these ongoing debates that the El Salvador and Iran Um the way he's, he's been foreign secretary for quite a while and he's now well versed in the kind of balancing act that has to be struck uh, between ethical and strategic considerations. Um, and it kind of reflects, I think, um, the philosophy of Isaiah Berlin, um, who's a figure that Owen cites in his book on human rights um, as an influence, particularly Berlin's writings on value pluralism and this idea that there's always going to be a conflict of values and a conflict over the interpretation of values, kind of rejection of moral absolutism. And was she an academic? Isaiah Berlin. Yes. Oh, you know, he's a, um, a philosopher. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, famous like, Oxford Don, I think. Um, yeah, and so... Owen kind of, he clings to this or he kind of constructs this um, morality of compromise as kind of on the spot sort of philosophical cladding that will hopefully, you know, (laughs) protect him from charges of hypocrisy and um, double standards. Um, You know, he says that um, morality far from being, or compromise rather, far from being the enemy of morality is its friend when you accept this idea that there's always going to be a conflict of values. Um, and I think it just kind of, again, reflects back on the sort of failure to effectively institutionalize mm. human rights concerns. Yeah. This idea of um, establishing, uh, you know, objective and reliable criteria is a, was a bit of a fallacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it was supposed to kind of, um, yeah, protect uh, ministers and uh, from this from these kind of charges. Um, but as you can clearly see that it doesn't, and Owen, as a result, has to sort of construct this ad hoc, you know, philosoph- you know philosophical protection um, when he's kind of being barraged by all these criticisms <laughs> of, of double standards. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's really interesting, also looking at how it's done now, where it seems like the UK is still a bit more um, 
flexible when it comes to the morality of decisions where the, the U.S., for example, have very strict legal laws, for example, which say if the groups you're supporting or if the people you're working with transgress human rights, then you have to stop immediately. Mm-hmm. Whereas here it's more of a consideration of, and more flexible in terms of um, the benefits of staying close so you can continue to influence. And it's interesting to hear like the historical um, roots of that, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's also important to say that, you know, you talked about Jimmy Carter yes. earlier, and I'm not an expert on Jimmy Carter's administration by any means, but that he also faced... Some of these mm. complications, yeah. you know, the balancing between national security interests and, and a human rights agenda. Mm-hmm. And I think there's that problem if you paint yourself as whiter than white, that you're, you're inviting criticism as soon as you do something yeah. that even appears to contradict. Yeah. And that example of, of Robin Cook is, is one. Now, I did want to quickly, really briefly, uh, look at what happened in the 80s under the Conservatives. Yeah. Did this all go out the window? What happened? Yeah, so I mean, it's um, there's certainly things that you can point to that would indicate, uh, you know, a kind of rapid sort of downgrading of this relationship between human rights and, and British foreign policy. Um, so the, the human rights comparative assessment that we mentioned is very quickly decommissioned. Um, we also mentioned the, the relationship between human rights and aid policy. Again, mm. that connection is is rapidly downgraded. Which is very relevant today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, but I think it would be. Yeah, it would be unfair to say that human rights kind of drops um, entirely off the radar. Um, it's important to note that you know, Thatcher and you know, high-profile members of the Conservative administration um, were beholden to a very different conception of human mm. rights than the than the Callaghan government that, that preceded it. So, whereas um, you know, uh, high-profile members of the Callaghan government, including Owen, saw human rights as indivisible, so um, you know, encompassing both ec- socio-economic rights and um, civil and political liberties. Uh, the Thatcher government privileged um, civil and political liberties and kind of uh, weaponized this in a, in a Cold War context. Mm, right. um, but you could also mention that this weaponization um, and a focus on uh, you know, engaging with human rights through the prism of the Helsinki process uh, kind of helped to keep human rights, at least on the British diplomatic radar, even if it was kind of um, separated from its socioeconomic mm-hmm. applications. Um, yeah, you saw during the late 1970s, you have a lot more engagement with um, debates surrounding the developing world and um, the kind of north-south dialogue, mm-hmm. uh, which very much kind of take, take more of a backseat during, during the 1980s. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. This is all fascinating yeah. stuff, and I wish we had more time, but yes. unfortunately, we are coming towards the end. Um, but I want to ask you one final question. So if you were to look at all this and kind of bring it to the modern day, mm. what would your advice be to the modern government um, <laughs> in regards to embedding a more human rights approach into their foreign policy? Yeah, well, I mean, as not being a kind of international relations scholar myself, mm. policy prescriptions are a bit <laughs> above, above my pay grade, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I mean, certainly I think the positive steps have been taken to... Effect, more effectively institutionalize um, human rights concerns. And in the, in the report you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, if you know, well implemented, um, could be another step in that in that process. But I think you're always going to have um, what Jonathan Gilmore refers to as um, this uncertain merger of values mm-hmm. and interests mm-hmm. in foreign policy. And I, I, I honestly don't know if that can ever be sort of overcome. Um, perhaps maybe moves to, I don't know, democratize the foreign policy making process or make it more open, um, would, you know, have the effect of kind of, um, you know, bringing, bringing a wider sort of section of society on board with, yeah. with this idea of compromise and, yeah. 
sort of defining where that where those lines need to be drawn. I think going back to what we kind of started out by discussing this idea of defining a nation's values mm. and then projecting it onto the yeah. Yeah. onto the global stage. That kind of process of definition is sort of done behind closed doors by a you know handful of, of ministers and foreign office officials, and then when those values bump up against economic interests, I think the assumption is that most people are fine with the kind of the compromise yeah. that ensues. Whereas I think I don't know maybe if um, you know maybe maybe more people would be okay with the idea of a financial setback if it meant that the government didn't have so much yeah. blood on its yeah. hands when it yeah. comes to dealing with these you know gross offenders of human rights um so yeah i don't know perhaps but that's a yeah very much i mean and that was always a challenge for the labor party because obviously yeah. many of their constituencies had sort of quite strong yeah. uh, industrial exactly. bases that were providing mm. uh, manufacturing uh, arms yeah. and they they i think they also struggled to balance that uh, with their ethical foreign policy mm. uh, drive well that's it well thank it you is. very much yes. it's been David, incredibly thank interesting you well, thank you very much thank for having you. me take care well, thank you very much for tuning in to that interview with David Greeley. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Now, for any of you who want to read a little bit more in depth about the topics we covered, we always put links to any research or publications that we have mentioned in the episode notes. And if you want to stay up to date with the Remote Warfare Programme or any other programme at the Oxford Research Group, then please subscribe to our newsletter by clicking on the button at the top of the page. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handles are at orginfo, at remote underscore warfare. And if you are feeling a little bit isolated at the moment with everything that's going on in the world, well, we have a whole catalogue of previous episodes of our podcast, which are absolutely free to access. And if you want to do so, you can follow the link at the top of the page. We do hope that you'll join us very soon. Goodbye.